Good. Thanks, Jerry. Um, looking forward two weeks, Perpetua and Felicity, I found, uh, it's, it's not in the book, but I found online, and I'll have a handout next week, a translation that's available online, I think from the 1970s. So it's really modern English. Uh, as you know, some of the things we've looked at, the translations are at the best early 20th century, some in the 19th century, and, and the language, well, particularly the 19th century one, reminds me of the King James Version of the Bible. And at times it's a bit difficult to read, but this really interesting story of these two ladies and their martyrdom uh, in uh, around 200, 205 or something like that. So uh, will be interesting. So today, Justin, um, as you might remember, we have, looking around here, we're in a group of apologists. Uh, we looked at Irenaeus a uh, couple weeks ago. Uh, Jerry talked about the letter to Diognetus, which are also uh, apologies. Uh, and, and today, Justin is probably thought by most people to be, I guess, the greatest uh, second century apologist. <clears throat> and I, I was saying earlier, in looking back a few weeks when we were talking about the Shepherd of Hermes, I, I think I was probably too apologetic because I just, I find the Shepherd of Hermes just weird. And, and, difficult for me to sit and read page after page of it uh, because it's a style that I'm not uh, so comfortable with, perhaps. And, and maybe it says more about me than it does about Justin, but Justin I find enjoyable to read. It's really organized uh, and it's a very sort of explanatory I don't know, maybe Justin's more left brain, uh, as am I. Uh, but he is thought to be one of the greatest of the second century. Uh, he's right in the middle of the second century, was born, some people say around 100, some people say even as much as 105, so right at the beginning of the second century. It's well documented. His year of death is 165 um, when he's martyred hence for all time given the name Justin Martyr uh, as a sort of a descriptor of his situation. He uh, grew up uh, in a, a town in Samaria called uh, where is it? Flavia Neapolis which is very close to Shechem, which is a, a familiar name from the Old Testament. And if you've been to that area today, the, the Syrian city of Nablus is, is that particular location. So it looks as though his upbringing, he was in a Greek family, um, though they were not natives of Samaria. So he was not a Samarian. His, Likely his parents immigrated there to that Roman city from 
somewhere else in the Roman Empire. So he, he um, was not Jewish, did not grow up in the Jewish religion, but certainly was close by, was very familiar with it, and from his writings, we'll see, he was intimately and in detail familiar with the, the uh, what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. Um, he was well-educated, would call himself a philosopher, and uh, went through a number of phases that I, I, I mention up here really quickly. I'm not going to try to uh, explain what the difference is between a Stoic and a Peripatetic. Pythagorean, I, I do think, those were people who believed that the sum of the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the, um, the, the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. Um, Platonist and then was converted to Christianity probably in his 30s. So we would, we would look at um, Justin as an adult convert to, to Christianity. Uh, it's likely he was baptized in Ephesus was converted there. And at that point, uh, he had seen what he believed to be such a uh, large number of uh, problems, of, of beliefs about Christianity that were just not correct in the world that he took it upon himself for the rest of his life to correct and refute those errors. Um, it's an interesting thing. He wore the traditional cloak of a philosopher, which was a very simple sort of garment, but recognizable, apparently, that someone would see him on the street and say, good morning, philosopher. Um, I was, in one thing that I was reading, it, <clears throat> it said you should not think so much the, say, the academic robe of a uh, professor, certainly not so much in our university system today, but, but in, the, in the university system as a garment that, that might be looked upon as the robe of a beggar. I mean, it, it was a very simple lifestyle as, as a philosopher, very dependent on others for your uh, complete income. Um, Later in his life, I say later, you know, he died when he was 65. So in sometime in the 40s or 50s of his life, he traveled to Rome and set up a little school of, of Christian philosophy and uh, probably small. I mean, it, it may have been one or two or three or a half a dozen students meeting in his home, but a school. Yeah, John? So many of them. Uh, these people were officials of some sort of the church. Was he, did he hold any office at all? Not, bishop or, not or that or I'm aware of, no. No, he seemed to um, keep a sort of a low key. He was, I guess you might think, sort of an academic. He was a, a uh, teacher, professor, uh, had a small school that met around him. But I, as far as I know, in Rome, he was not, he did not have a, an, an office in the, in the church. 
as I said, he was martyred in 165, along with six of his students. So at, at that point, apparently his school included at least a, a half a dozen or so. Um, there's, there's records of his interrogation by Rusticus, who was a, a, an official, a Roman governor, and was also known to be a Stoic philosopher. So this interrogation had uh, not just a, uh, a legal context, but also uh, a discussion of, of Christianity versus Stoic philosophy. Eusebius, who Jerry mentioned um, just a few minutes ago, tells us that Justin had at least eight significant works that he wrote. Um, as with many of these second century authors, uh, we only have copies of three of those. Um, the one that we're going to look at some excerpts from the, the complete document is in the, the book. And by the way, there are still two books back there, and I think the, the sale price is now $15? No, I, I, will not, I will not harm those who have already purchased, so they're still oh. $10. Oh, okay. Well, I was thinking maybe you could put them on sale for $15. Well, I know, but that would not be fair. To the, <laughs> um, the, the, the largest of these documents is what's known as Justin's first apology and, and was probably written in the early 150s. The second apology is not so much a separate or a subsequent document as it probably is an addendum to the first apology or someone had said it could be that he had a number of chapters in that he selected for the first apology and these were chapters that didn't make the cut to go into that one, or you know, so it's it's a uh, a very complementary document to the first one. And then there's an interesting um, document that we're not going to read any of today, but that's called the Dialogue with Trifo. And uh, Trifo was was a Jewish man, and this. Uh, interaction actually took place about 25 years earlier but it looks likely that it was written and completed after the first apology because the the second apology and the dialogue with Trifo both reference and refer to the first apology so they're both written afterwards um, it's I guess it's not really known if Trifo was really a person or if this is a literary technique of being able to uh, do, an, do an apology for certain parts of Christian belief and put it as a dialogue. And I mean, that, that could be just the style of writing, but uh, an interesting document. As we will see when, and I, keep talking rather fast here so we can get to the document. Um, Justin addresses his document to the emperor in a, in a very formal sense. This is a petition 
that could have been, you know, all packaged up and tied with ribbons and sent to the emperor. We, we don't really know if, if he has done this simply to, to make his document uh, more official looking or if it actually did make it into the emperor for someone close to him, his chief of staff or whoever was in the, the emperor's white house at those days. Um, but that's the way it's addressed and we'll, we'll look at the introduction in, in just a moment. There's another person that I think has been mentioned once or twice in class, just in passing, um, the cynic philosopher Crescens was very um, a, was a person who was very much critical and against Christianity, and um, apparently Justin has a confrontation with him, and uh, at least from the view of the writings, uh, Justin painted him into a corner and made him to look very ignorant and particularly of Christianity and uh, humiliated him. And Crescens comes back, I, I believe in some of the accounts of Eusebius as one of the people who accused Justin and may have been at least partially responsible for his uh, condemnation to death later on. In the email this week, I uh, had pointed out to take a look at Acts the 22nd chapter and Acts the 26th chapter for really good examples of apologies. And, and if you look at them both in the first verse of the 22nd chapter, the first verse of the 26th chapter, Luke explains that Paul is making a defense. This Greek word apologia simply means defense. And, and uh, Paul's, the structure of his speech in those two occasions uh, would have been the, the structure of an apology. Uh, one of the authors that I was reading said, it's interesting that a defense does not always simply contain uh, defensive statements about the, the, uh, the beliefs, but rather the, by somebody's, I don't know where this statement comes from, that the best defense is a good offense, that Paul, as well, went on the offense to uh, the person that he was speaking to. But, but these are, apologies are rather common uh, in, in that time as, as far as the structure. Okay. The first apology, uh, I'm trying to find a place here to, it, <clears throat> as I said, Justin is quite well organized and his uh, document, this first apology has 68 chapters, so it's rather long. 
in, <clears throat> in the, the book that we've used in class some, well, I think it's 45 pages or something like that. So it's a, a document that takes uh, an hour or two to read through in its completeness. But it has this parallel arrangement where the, the uh, main point is the center of the document. And that's where we're going to try to spend most. Oh, that was interesting. Um, we're going to try to spend most of our time today. See if this just comes back on. Um, so a little bit different than the way the author of the textbook uh, the, the author of the text of the book goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But I, I did it this way just to, to show that, that they're in parallels and this argument from prophecy is the center of his argument. So he's going to, to argue the authenticity of Christianity from the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. <clears throat> but also in here, uh, there's a, a bit of an introductory uh, section that parallels the concluding chapter. And, and I've got some excerpts from from both 1 through 3 and 68. And then there's a, a section on faith and life and a section on Christian worship. I think probably in our time, we're not going to get around to, to looking at, even though I had some excerpts from this Christian worship section. And I don't know if those of you that had the handout from last week and read, if you found it to be familiar sounding, it, it's an interesting, he talks about baptism, he talks about the Lord's Supper, he talks about restrictions on the Lord's Supper participants, who, who was allowed to do that. He, he talks about the structure of the worship service, um, the readings, the explanation, the, the sermon uh, on, on the readings. He talks about <clears throat> the collection of of money, the collection of funds um, for the use, um, makes it very clear that their meeting was on the first day of the week, was on was on Sunday. Um, then there's these two sections C that talks about a comparison to paganism, and he even accuses paganism of trying in many respects to imitate Christianity. So they're using some of the same features and uh, I, I don't think, yeah, in the selections we don't have any excerpts from there, but it, it's in the, in the, uh, the book. So let's look first at this introduction and this concluding section and we'll just read through a little bit of it. Um, as we said, he addresses his apology to the emperor. So to emperor, and I, I don't, have not seen it before with, 
someone having whatever that is, seven moons? But anyhow, if you see down here in the middle, it's Antonius Pius. So it's the, the emperor right in the middle of the century. And we had said this apology is written in the 150s. So Antonius Pius is the emperor, even though he's Titus, Alias, Hadriana, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and two, uh, two of his sons, Bersimus, the philosopher, and Lucius, um, and then goes on to address to the Senate and to the whole Roman people. So he's pulling in everybody. <clears throat> on behalf of men of every nation who are unjustly hated and reviled. So he sets out immediately what he thinks about the treatment <coughs> that the Christians are being given. So I, Justin, is his... Uh, father's name, his grandfather's name, the, that city, Flavia Neapolis in Syria, being myself one of them. So he, in the very first sentence, states his, his Christian beliefs. Then in the, in the next call them chapters, maybe it's easier for me to call them paragraphs, really, but in the, the next part of the, the introduction, he, to me, is trying to make the people that he's addressing this to uh, feel like they have to make the decision that he's, that that's the only logical, that's the only uh, good decision so reason requires that those who are truly pious and philosophers, remember he just mentioned that a couple of the sons of the, the uh, Caesar are philosophers, should honor and cherish the truth alone. And he's going to present them with the truth. Uh, Scorning merely to follow the opinions of the ancients if they are worthless, nor does sound reason only require that one should not follow those who do or teach what is unjust. The lover of truth ought to choose in every way, even at the cost of his own life, to speak and do what is right, though death should take him away. So Justin is saying, you know, I believe what I believe, and you should believe it as well, if it is truth, even to the point of, of dying for that. Um, then he says, he's asking you to give judgment according to strict and exact inquiry. So not, not based on emotion, but but based on the facts that he will give. And then a little bit from the third paragraph. Um, but so that no one may think that this is an unreasonable and presumptuous utterance, we ask that the charges against us be investigated. So. He wants the people he's addressing 
to look at the evidence. Then skipping all the way to the end, the, the last paragraph, the last chapter of his apology it is very much in parallel to the same thoughts here. If what we say seems to you reasonable and true, treat it with respect. If it seems foolish to you, then <laughs> despise us as foolish creatures, but do not decree the death penalty as against enemies for those who do no wrong. So he's sort of giving them an out if, if they don't believe it, if they think it's foolishness, well, it's not dangerous. It's just foolishness. So there, there's no reason to give the, give the death penalty. And then I, I don't list here, but, um, but I did in the handout, I think. <coughs> he gives a reference to and, and writes in the text of a letter um, from Hadrian. So the, the current <coughs> Caesar is Antonius. He's the son of Hadrian. And he, Justin, includes a letter from Hadrian that, that gives Christians some uh, ability to function in their beliefs. And uh, Justin uses that sort of as his <coughs> closing to say, just you know, look at the letter from your own predecessor, the previous Caesar. Questions, comments? Going to try to slow down a bit and not talk so fast. Justin, I assume, was not a Roman citizen. Do we know? You know, I don't know. If if I had to guess, if it was multiple choice, I'd say yes. Um, because of his, you know, his parents' background and living in a, in a Roman city in Flavia and Neapolis. Um, but Jerry, do you know? Yeah, I don't know. Just the real thing he was. Yeah. Did he receive an answer or do we know? I don't know. Now, if the collective we, the we, is it available? I, not that I'm aware of. Is it known that he received yeah. an answer or not? Yeah. And, and, uh, no, there, there's nothing like, you know, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at this uh, correspondence from Trajan and Pliny, and, and we don't have anything like that that I'm aware of. So we don't even Justin. know if the emperor ever read it or not, for sure. That's correct. And, and two, I think, remember, Justin considers himself 
not to be what we would call a theologian or a, uh, a speaker for the church. He considers himself to be a philosopher, a, a Christian philosopher, but uh, he, he uh, is, is doing this on the basis of his personal beliefs and Yes? I would say he, he, he's making a reasonable argument, not a theological argument. Yes. Yes. So 30 starts that, chapter 30, starts that section in the middle based on uh, that, that's the, the core of his argument, the core of his defense for Christianity. And just in reading here, but lest someone should argue against us, what excludes the supposition that this person whom you call Christ was a man of human origin and did these miracles you speak of by magic arts <coughs> and so appeared to be God's son? So he's sort of recounting what their likely beliefs were. We will bring forward our demonstration. We do not trust in mere hearsay, but are forced to believe those who prophesied these things before they happened because we actually see things that have happened and are happening as predicted. So he's building his argument on uh, fulfillment of prophecy. And then in 31, he uh, talks about the origin of those prophecies. And it's, it's the Old Testament that, that we would recognize. There were among the Jews certain men who were prophets of God through whom the prophetic spirit announced in advance events that were to occur. The successive rulers of the Jews carefully preserved their prophecies as they were spoken when they prophesied in their own Hebrew language and as arranged in books by the prophets themselves. And then he, he goes on, um, I, I, I don't have it up here, but in the handout, the rest of that paragraph, he talks about the, the origin of the Septuagint. Uh, Justin's details of some of that might not agree with other people's details uh, of uh, the translation, but um, he, he talks to, to this audience, to this group that he's addressing, the fact that all of these prophecies are available in Greek, you can read them. They, they've been available for a long time, uh, since the time of, of, of uh, Ptolemy in, in Egypt. And, and then in 33, he starts into the details of, of 
one area from we would recognize from Isaiah. And again, hear how it was literally prophesied by Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name God with us. For God testified in advance through the prophetic spirit that things which are unbelievable and thought impossible among men would happen so that when this should occur, it would not be disbelieved, but received with faith because it had been predicted. And then he goes on a little bit here on the screen and more in the text of explaining exactly what Isaiah means by a virgin will conceive. Uh, for behold, the virgin shall conceive means that the virgin would conceive without intercourse. For if she had had intercourse with anyone, she would not have been a virgin. But God's power coming upon the virgin overshadowed her and caused her to conceive while still remaining a virgin. The angel of God who was sent to this virgin at the time brought her this good news saying, Behold, you will conceive in the womb by a Holy Spirit and will bear a son, and he will be called Son of the Highest, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As those who recorded everything about our Savior Jesus Christ taught us, we believe them since the prophetic spirit through the above-mentioned Isaiah said that this would happen as we noted before. And in other sections, he goes through and, and does a comparison with some of the Roman gods and, and how they interacted with human women in their time and, and describes how this is different. This is, this is not the same as the things you believe about uh, people like Hercules and some of those. To look at another uh, section in chapter 34, here also in part of the earth, here also in what part of the earth he was to be born. As another prophet, Micah, foretold, he said, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. This is a village in the land of the Jews, very specific here, 35 stadia from Jerusalem in which Jesus Christ was born, as you can learn from the census which was taken under Quirinius, who was your first procurator in Judea. So Justin is relying upon their own records as well that they can go check this out if they, uh, if they want to. Getting close to our time here, but um, 
remember this center section takes up a, oh, not quite, more than a third of, of the uh, apology from chapter 30 through chapter what, 53, I think, the numbers. So he goes through other prophecies. Uh, here, uh, someone might argue with the dates a little bit. Maybe he's kind of rounding off. David wasn't quite 1,500 years earlier, but he's closer to 15 than he is 1,000 probably. Um, And then at the end of that section, in 52 and 53, uh, 53, he says, I could cite many other prophecies too, but pause, thinking that these are sufficient to convince those who have ears to hear and understand. And considering that such people can understand that we do not, like those who tell the mythical stories about so-called sons of Zeus, merely talk without having proofs. So he points the finger rather markedly at some of their own stories that they seem to accept without questioning them. For why should we believe a crucified man that he is first begotten of the unbegotten God and that he will pass judgment on the whole human race unless we found testimonies proclaimed about him before he came and was made man and see that things have thus happened. So Justin obviously <coughs> believes that these prophecies were made many hundreds of years earlier, but they have happened, they, they have occurred. Uh, we're out of, I think that's the last slide I had, yeah. I find these interesting pictures, you just Google them and pull them up and, and was trying, trying to figure out whether this was actually a fresco, uh, from some time ago of the Otter Creek elders. Or, uh, <laughs> or, or we've decided though, no, it's the Lipscomb Bible faculty. <laughs> but, uh, Jerry, did you count? Uh, yes, I did. Good, I have, thank you. Uh, I have two handouts uh, from Eusebius. If you're interested and excited about reading Eusebius in preparation for next week's class. Uh, one will be a statement from Eusebius about why he wrote his history, what he expected to accomplish, and then the other is a copy that he included in his history of a letter that I mentioned a few minutes ago about the martyrdom of Christians in Gaul, which is today's France. So grab one of each in this pack if you're so inclined to read Eusebius this week. Thank you.